For our time here together, we are going to talk about the announcement of the king. All of you could take a seat. Feel free to be seated. Uh, We'll get into the word later. But I do want to talk about the announcement of the king. We we have seen this this theme of the kingdom uh, develop in the Hebrew Bible. And we've been singing about it the entire day today, which is awesome. I think we need to sing more about the kingdom because it is a central theme within the Bible that we have. Um, And we have seen the kingdom develop through the Hebrew Bible. Um, Here's a chart that could help us remember uh, what the kingdom was all about. We went over the law. Uh, And within the law, we saw God make an ordered, beautiful kingdom. In this kingdom, God and humans were supposed to rule together. But repeatedly, humans chose to rule with the serpent. Rule by themselves. Rule in rebellion to God. Yet, despite this rebellion... God still desired to rule with humans. In the wilderness, if we remember with the people of Israel after God had delivered them from Egypt, God gave his instructions, his law to his people, guidelines on how his people were supposed to represent him. But humans disobeyed over and over They disobeyed by doing what was right in their own eyes. The prophets, however, even though the Israelites were messing up over and over, the prophets heralded, they announced, they proclaimed that God would bring the kingdom and that a king would come, a perfect king. And in the writings, the literature, wisdom literature, we are told on how we are to wait for the kingdom. How we are to live in the kingdom. What are we supposed to do? We are supposed to fear God, trust him, and do what is right. But where is the king in the kingdom? As we finish the Old Testament, we, we don't really know where he is at. Uh, We don't have any writings within the Bible when we finish the Old Testament and go to the New Testament. We do not have any scriptural writings for about 200 to 300 years. But there were writings from God's people, from the Israelites, that help us see what they were thinking. Much of their writings was apocalyptic eschatology. That is, the Jews during this time in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, during this intertestamental period, they wrote literature that revealed how things were going to work out. And I want to quote some things so we could get an idea of what, what were the people of God thinking about during this time. The literature contains some casual references to God as king, to his heavenly and universal reign, to the super, to the support, to, to just how the Son of Man is higher and greater and superior, um, and how his reign is better than the reign of human kingdoms. And we will also see through their writings the final judgment in this paradisiacal state. This paradise 
of where his, his people, God's people, would uh, dwell in. Usually this place would, not, it would be here on earth. And here, here are some writings. This is the first one uh, during, again, intertestamental period. This is by Tobit. It's in the book of Tobit. And the first one is God is referred as king of the ages. Uh, you could see that he is referred to the king of the ages. He's also referred as the king of heaven and also the great king. In the additions to Esther, we find, that, we find this reference, this quote. O Lord God and King, God of Abraham, that is found in the 13th chapter, verse 15, of the additions to Esther. We also find in 14.3, our King. We also find in 14.12, O King of the gods and master of all dominion. Then in 2 Maccabees, if you just keep on going to the next slide, um, we're currently, yep, there we go. And uh, in 2 Maccabees, we see that it says, there's a sacrificial prayer listed for the priest. And it says, O Lord, Lord, God, creator of all things, who art awe-inspiring and strong and just and merciful, who alone art king. And they use the Greek word for king, Basilius. So we were getting a sense of what they thought. They, They viewed during the intertestamental period, and if you have your notes, you could write this in. They viewed, in general, this is how they viewed God. God is the creator. He is the lawgiver and just judge. And is called the king of the universe and king of kings. So this is how the Israelites, they began to see God. Furthermore, the Jews had begun to see that to follow the Torah, remember, the law that Moses received and gave to his people, part of it is the Ten Commandments. To follow the Torah, the Jews believed, is to follow the divine will of the king. To submit oneself unquestionably to the law is to take upon oneself the Malkuth, kingdom of heaven. The law was the guidelines that God had given his people. In Malkuth, uh, it means kingdom in Hebrew. So, so they believed if we follow God's rules, we will be part of the kingdom. So in this sense, and being able to follow the law, to submit under the law, in one sense, the kingdom of God was a present reality. It was already here. But yet, in another sense... The kingdom wasn't here. Look at some prayers that the Jews, the Israelites, prayed during the time of Jesus. Here's a prayer, and it's a great prayer. It says, may he, God, establish his kingdom during your life and during your days and during the life of all the house of Israel. This was written during the second Jewish temple era. This is written during the time of Jesus. And they're waiting. They were praying, may the kingdom come during your lifetime. And then if we go to the Assumption of Moses, another writing during the same era in chapter 10 of the Assumption of Moses. It says, and then his kingdom shall appear throughout all his creation. And then Satan shall be no more. And sorrow shall depart with him. For the heavenly one will arise 
from his royal throne. And he will go forth from his holy habitation with indignation and wrath on account of his sons. For the Most High will arise, the eternal God alone. And he will appear to punish Gentiles. And he will destroy all idols. And thou, Israel, shall be happy. And God will exalt thee. And he will cause thee to approach to the heaven and stars. So we see that the kingdom, they would pray this prayer that the kingdom would come, that evil would be destroyed, and that they may receive royal power. This is a pretty good prayer. And even in the early centuries AD, in the, chap- in the, 70, in the 73rd chapter of the Apocalypse of Baruch, it's again after the time of Jesus, but it's the, it shows us the heart of the Israelites. It says, And it shall come to pass when he, the Messiah, has brought low everything that is in the world and has sat down in peace for the age of the throne, his kingdom. That, that joy shall then be revealed and rest shall appear. Again, what we have read, it's not scripture. It's not God's word. But these are writings that were written during the time of, the, of between the Testaments. Between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And they show us the heart of God's people. What were they thinking about? What were they waiting for? And they were waiting for the kingdom and the king. They were waiting for joy to come. They were waiting for Rest to come. C.H. Dodd, a popular theologian of the 20th century, observed that the Jews were expecting the Messiah. They were expecting God in human form to rule as king of the world. But unfortunately, they did not recognize the king when he came to this world. C.H. Dodd said... The world does not recognize him as king. His own people are in fact subject to secular powers, which in the present age are permitted to exercise malkuth. That is, again, the Hebrew word for kingdom. Israel, however, looks forward to the day when the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom. And so the kingship of God will become effective over the whole world. Some Jews, some Israelites, are still till this day waiting for the kingdom to come and are still waiting for their king. But in the Gospels of the New Testament, we see that the king has already arrived. Now, Let's look at Christianity. Everything that we have covered so far in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, it comes originally from Judaism, from from Israel. In fact, Christianity originally was a Jewish religion, a Jewish sect. The first Christians viewed themselves as a reformed form of Orthodox Judaism. You look in the book of Acts, you would see that the first Christians, where would they go to worship? They would go to the temple with other Jews to go worship God. But today we are focusing 
on Christianity because we start the New Testament. What is Christianity all about? It's all about the gospel of Jesus. If you have your notes, feel free to write that. Christianity is all about the gospel of Jesus. But what is the gospel of Jesus all about? This is an interesting question. The gospel of Jesus is not just about a new moral teaching, although Jesus did teach great morality. It's not just about a moral example, although Jesus was a great example. It's not just about giving a new teaching on God, although Jesus did teach a great deal about the identity of God, his heavenly father. It's not just about Jesus offering a new way whereby people can enter heaven after they die, although Jesus did give us a way to go be with God after death. What did Jesus teach about? Who is Jesus? In fact, I, I want us to think about what, what do we envision when we think about Jesus? Here's an exercise that we could all do. I, I, want, I want us, if you, if you feel comfortable, close your eyes or, or just imagine with me. Imagine with me. Imagine with me, envision in your head the person of Jesus. What does he look like? What are his facial features, his hairstyle, eye color, height, and skin tone? Most likely, if you want to open your eyes, you may. Most likely, you thought of Jesus looking like this. Because most of modern Western depictions of Jesus look like this. This picture may give us a sense of serenity, peace, and may even soothe us. But this picture of Jesus is a recent depiction that arose just in the 20th century. In 2001, there, there was a study, this, this, this uh, project that took place under an anthropologist named Richard Neve, and he created a model of what a Galilean man would look like. He did it under for a BBC documentary called The Son of God. And he found a skull in the region of Galilee, in the region of Jesus, and during the time of Jesus. He did not claim that it was Jesus, that it was his face, but instead he, he used it as a guide, as a prompt. So we could think of what Jesus would have looked like because he was a man of his time, and the Bible doesn't tell us that he looked distinct. No. He, he most likely, Jesus, looked like this. He looked like a Jewish man from the Middle East in the first century A.D. I am not saying that we need to see Jesus exactly like this. But be open to the possibility that our view of Jesus, our serene, Caucasian, Western view of Jesus, is very likely not the historical Jesus. Sometimes we go into the Bible 
with our preconceived notions of the identity of Jesus. Consequently, our preconceived picture of Jesus disconnects the Jesus we experience from the Jesus of the Bible and of history. We should not abandon history because when we do, we may believe a mere fantasy. We should see the Christ that comes from the historical accounts that come from the scriptures. If you have your notes, feel free to write this down. We are seeing the historical Jesus, the Jesus that came to this world rather than what this culture may depict him as or what this world may depict him as. Here's what N.T. Wright said on looking at Jesus through the historical accounts of the gospel of the Bible. When we look at the story of Jesus, we will recognize that Christianity is all about the beliefs that the living God, in fulfillment of his promises and as the climax of the story of Israel, has accomplished all this, the finding, the saving, the giving of new life in Jesus. He has done it. With Jesus, God's rescue operation has been put into effect once and for all. A great door has swung open in the cosmos, which can never again be shut. It's the door to the prison where we've been kept chained up. We are offered freedom. Freedom to experience God's rescue for ourselves, to go through the open door and explore the new world to which we now have access. In particular, we're all invited, summoned actually, to discover through following Jesus that this new world is indeed a place of justice, spirituality, relationship, and beauty. And that we are not only to enjoy as such, but also to work at bringing to birth on earth as in heaven. I am excited to see Jesus through the Gospels with all of you. If we are going to see Jesus through the Gospels, it's helpful to understand what the word gospel even means. What... What, what, when we say gospel, that Christianity is all about the gospel of Jesus, what does this word gospel even mean? Scott McKnight wrote this. Because the word euangelion, which is the Greek word for gospel, comes from eul, which means good, like euphoria, and angelion, tidings or message. They, people, assume that it must mean good news for you and me personally. Or it simply can't mean good news. So, when we hear this word gospel, don't, don't immediately think, okay, it means good, for, good news for me. Although, it does eventually. First, see the gospel. See this good news as it actually is. A historical account. Once you see it as a historical event, that, that it is, you will... See how your life relates to the event instead of forcing the event to relate to you first. Scott continues, Yet, in the New Testament, 
and its world. Eungelion, this word for gospel, frequently refers to a royal announcement, such as news of a new king for the general public, quite apart from whether that announcement would result in good for you or me personally. That is, the good and good news is not intrinsically a personal good. Look, to illustrate this, here's a picture of Vespasian's bust. Okay, he was, he, he was a Caesar during Rome, uh, in Rome. And there was heralded, people proclaimed, Eungelia, good news for the empire. Before he had done anything good or bad, just when he became Caesar, they were shouting, Eungelia. The gospel for this king. And it wasn't what they didn't consider his regard for his intentions towards specific individuals. Similarly, the, the gospel, when we look at this word, we're seeing that Jesus is king, and the gospels are the announcement, are his royal announcement. Jesus is king. And the gospels that we find within the Bible, what they are first and foremost, they are announcements that Jesus is king. What do the gospels proclaim about King Jesus? Well, here are 10 points, and I'm just going to go over them briefly. I'm, I'm not going to spend time. I'll just read them off because they are pretty extensive, and we could spend an entire sermon on each one. But I, I just want to go over them briefly so we have an idea of what the kingdom is all about. Number one, Jesus preexisted with God in a father-son relationship. Jesus said that he was the In John, we find the proclamation of John that Jesus was the word and he was with God. And, uh, and we, also say that, we also see that Jesus said that he wants us to have a relationship with him as he has had since the very beginning with the Father. We also see that he was sent by the Father. Jesus says that I send you as the Father has sent me. Uh, we also see that he took, number three, human flesh as a fulfillment of God's promise to David. He died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He appeared to many witnesses. He was enthroned, enthroned at the right hand of God as the ruling Christ. Has sent, he has sent the Holy Spirit to his people to effect his rule. And he will come again as final judge to rule. Therefore, through the Gospels, we will see, as N.T. Wright said, how God became king in and through Jesus Christ, both in his public career and death. When you open up your New Testament, you will see that there are four gospel accounts. And each of these, they proclaim and show us how God became king in and through Jesus Christ. There is the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in these gospels, Patrick Schreiner, he said this. We expect the kingdom to come into the world with a bang. To conquer 
destroy, win, and set up his kingdom. We read earlier the, the heart of the Jewish people. They wanted the kingdom to just come and just destroy and, and, and be so sudden. But he comes quietly. The king comes quietly in a little town in the corner of the world. Rather than conquering, he is conquered. Rather than overthrowing, he is trod into the very dirt. He is broken with a bowed head and lowered eyes, shoulders falling down like teardrops. But still, he rises. The words of Maya Angelou are true about Jesus. You may tread me in the very dirt, but still like dust, I'll rise. Shriner said, Jesus is killed with hate and also trod in the very dirt. Yet it is only through being conquered that he installs the kingdom that was promised long ago. In the Gospels, we will see God fulfill his promises to Adam, Abraham, David, and Isaiah through Jesus Christ, the Davidic Messiah. Jesus, Patrick Schreiner said, will show us that the kingdom will not be realized by means of a large army. The means will be more like a seed planted in the ground. It is like leaven placed in bread rather than a sudden appearance of high walls and a throne. The kingdom is very different than what we may expect it to look like. We will see that Jesus is the kingdom. Origin correctly said, Jesus is the autobasilia. Autobasilia meant that he himself is the kingdom. Therefore, in one sense, to seek the kingdom is to seek Jesus. Last week, Oscar preached, and I'm so thankful that he did. He did a wonderful job on teaching how God is love. And I, I love what he said on how Jesus is the way. He, he quoted the story of Thomas and Jesus. They were talking in the book of John and the gospel of John. And Thomas asked Jesus, how, asked him, what was the way to the Father? And Jesus responded that I am the way. I love what Oscar said on this. Jesus is the way to the kingdom. Jesus is the kingdom because he alone fulfills the demands of the kingdom. He is the way to the kingdom. Patrick Schreiner also said, Jesus personalizes the kingdom, embodies it. It takes his seat on the throne. What Adam, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Samson, Saul, David, and Daniel disrupted, Jesus mollified. Jesus is the human face of the kingdom. What these people, David and Daniel, what they brought up, Jesus brings to pass. We will see this in the four Gospels. And each Gospel does it in a different way. It does it uniquely. In the Gospel of Matthew, we see the place of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven. 
In Matthew, Jesus is the seed of David who reorders the place of earth. The kingdom also appears as an upside-down type of kingdom. In the Gospel of Mark, we'll see the authority Jesus has through suffering. The Gospel of Luke shows us who will inherit the kingdom. The weak, the poor, the neglected, all those who were unexpected will inherit the kingdom. Jesus helps the marginal as the face of the kingdom. The rejected, the poor, the tax collector, the sinner, the woman, the Samaritan, and the Gentile. Because these type of people will occupy the kingdom. In John, in the Gospel of John, we will see how the kingdom comes through what is termed by John the eternal life. Here's a chart that maybe could help us envision the kingdom within the Gospels. In Matthew, we see the king's place. In Mark, we see the king's power. In Luke, we see the king's people. And in John, we see life and the kingdom. So, I introduced you guys a little bit of the New Testament. And I want to start off just looking at three verses, uh, three portions of Scripture... And just look at what they have to say concerning the kingdom. Uh, We're not going to spend too much time. But I do want to start off. Next time we meet we'll look more into the teachings of Jesus. But today I do want to look at the birth of Jesus. And I know that Christmas it's still a while. And we'll revisit the birth during Advent. During the time of the birth. When we remember the birth of Jesus. As most churches do. Uh, But right now I do want to go over it. Briefly, we won't spend too much time on it. So if you have your Bibles, uh, go with me to the book of Luke. uh, The first chapter of Luke. First chapter of Luke. And Luke, uh, you could find Luke. It's like, it's after Mark. It's towards the end of your book. Um, We've already covered a lot of the Bible. Of course, we haven't gone verse by verse. But it's nice that we've spent some time looking, looking at the overall picture of the Bible. But anyways, Luke 1, 28 to 33, if you don't have it within your Bibles, uh, you could look up to the screen, and it is, it is available there. So Luke 1, starting from verse 28, it says, The angel went to her, and her is Mary, and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign. Over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Just looking at that verse, you could see so much kingdom language. We see son. Remember son from from the promise that God had made to David. That he would have a son who would be God's son. who, Who God would be to him like a father and he would be like a son to him. 
We also see kingdom, a kingdom that will never end. We also see throne, which is connected to David. All of this kingdom language in the very beginning, so clear. And it's awesome being able to see that after looking at this kingdom theme. After 400 years of silence, remember in the beginning, we talked about once the Old Testament closed, uh, there were about 400, 200, 300 years of silence. God wasn't speaking as he typically did. We don't find between Malachi within our Bibles or Second Chronicles, if you're looking at the Hebrew Bible, and Matthew. You don't, we don't find scripture, God's word written during that time. But after these 400 years of silence, the voice of God was heard again by his people. And they heard it, Israel heard it with the announcement of the coming Jesus. The announcement came from an angel named Gabriel. Gabriel announced to Mary, a teenage Jewish girl, that she would bear the son of the Most High, who would rule on the throne of David forever. We also see that Mary would name her son Jesus. Typically, human fathers would be the ones during that time to name their children. But here, the mother is naming the son. This can be an indication that Mary's son would not have a human father. But instead, his father comes from above. Here, we get a sense of the awaited king. The one who comes from a woman in the very beginning, Genesis 3. Who would be the one who crushes the serpent. The Abrahamic one. The one that comes from Abraham who would, be a bless, who would be blessed to bless all the nations. And this is the one who is the son of David, whose father is God. We see the beginning of God bringing the Messiah over Israel through a child. Gabriel was not the only announcer. God himself announces King Jesus. Let's go to Matthew 3.13. Now we're going back uh, a couple pages. Um, Matthew chapter 13, uh, chapter 3, sorry, verse 13. So the first passage we saw, who was the announcer? That was the angel Gabriel. In Matthew 3.13, we see God himself being the announcer. Matthew 3.13 says this. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter, deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? So John is like, hey, why, why do you want me to baptize you? You should be the one baptizing me. Verse 15 says, Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At the moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. 
And a voice from heaven said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We see Jesus in this passage that we have read. Coming to the scene as he often does. In this scene, we, we see, and you can find the scene in the other gospel accounts as well. But in this scene, we see that Jesus comes to be baptized by John. Why would Jesus be baptized by John? Matthew notes that baptism, that uh, Jesus was baptized because it would fulfill all righteousness. In other words, Jesus was going to be baptized because it was the right thing to do. But he wasn't sinful. Jesus was not sinful. And I would understand that Jesus would be baptized if he had sinned. But Jesus wasn't sinful. And yet it was right for him to be baptized. I'm just going to show you some reasons why uh, it would be right for Jesus to be baptized. And all of these reasons could be valid. And maybe one of them is correct. Or maybe a number of them are the reasons why Jesus was baptized. So... Number one, Jesus was baptized because he just felt God impelled him to do so. For some reason that we do not know, he just, God just moved him to be baptized. Number two, he was, conceived, he was convinced for the rightness of John's ministry. John was Jesus' cousin and he was Jesus' forerunner. He, he prepared the way. And by being baptized, Jesus was just saying what John is doing this is the right thing to do. And he wants to approve John's ministry. Another reason was that he wanted to publicly identify with, with the people who were, were there in the sense that he wanted to declare publicly, look, I am serious about what John is doing and about following God. So through baptism, he was just declaring, I am serious about giving my life to God. The fourth reason that is possible is that Jesus came in human solidarity to identify himself with the sinners whom he had come to save. He wanted to relate with the sinners, not through sin, but through baptism. So that's why he was baptized. Five, uh, Jesus came to join John's movement, which is somewhat similar to the second reason. He just wanted to join his movement, and baptism was the initiatory right. Um, and six, Jesus came to be anointed to be as a Messiah by the one he took to be Elijah. So those are all reasons that Jesus could have done it. And maybe one of them is correct or maybe none, but these are possible valid reasons. Yep. John, even though maybe he had a reason to baptize Jesus, he, he didn't want to. Because he believed that Jesus was the one who was supposed to baptize him. But Jesus still insisted that he should be baptized by John. So John, he, although he saw himself to be the one who prepares the way, not the one who baptizes Jesus. He, although he saw himself, he said the words that I shall become less, less of me, more of him. Although he said that, he still baptized Jesus. And, he, and when he baptized him, 
and brought him up. The heavens opened. And behold, the Spirit of God, as a dove, like a dove, it descended on him. From the Hebrew Bible, we can see the significance of the Spirit descending on Jesus. According to Isaiah 11:1, 1, the Spirit rests on the Messiah. God puts his Spirit on the servant in Isaiah 42:1, And the Spirit is on the herald of Isaiah 42:1. So we're seeing these passages come to be fulfilled in this scene. The Spirit is coming in the Messiah. This was a sign. It shows us, if we know the Bible, we should see that this is a sign that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the servant of God, and that he is the herald, the proclaimer, the one who announces the kingdom. And then, there was a voice from God saying, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. God announces the good news, which Gabriel introduced with Mary. In God's announcement, Matthew records that God combined Isaiah 42 and Psalm 2 to identify the person of Jesus. He was quoting scripture. God was quoting scripture when he made this proclamation. The word beloved or whom I love directly connects this announcement to Isaiah 42. And if we look at Isaiah 42, we find these allusions, these references. We find that the suffering servant of Isaiah 42, and if we connect it to the Gospels, that the suffering servant is Jesus Christ. God, if you have your notes, you feel free to write this. God was portraying Jesus As the suffering one. He was also showing that Jesus was his favorite. The one whom he has approved as the Messiah who is now endowed with the Spirit. And he also quoted from Psalm 2. Psalm 2-7. God, by quoting Psalm 2-7, emphasized Jesus' sonship. And his Messiahship. Jesus is the chosen son. The one that would come, to da- if come from David. Who would have a special status. Who would see God as his father. And God would see him as his son. This is what R.T. France said. The words are generally understood to be drawn from Psalm 2-7. Which addresses the Davidic king as God's son. And was understood of the Messiah. In Isaiah 42, 1. Which introduces the servant as God's chosen on whom he has put the spirit. As God's anointed. What did Jesus do? As I'm closing, I just want to close with this last verse. Mark 1, 14 to 15. So we see that Jesus was anointed. And what, what does he do as God's anointed. Mark 1 verse 15. Uh, Actually, I'll be restarting from verse 14. And it says this. After John was put in, in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. 
And this is what Jesus proclaimed as the one who had just been baptized, as the one who had received the Spirit, as the one whom the angel Gabriel had proclaimed, as the one whom God had proclaimed about. Verse 15, this is what Jesus said. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Remember that word good news is euangelion. Essentially he's saying believe and repent. Or repent and believe rather. This announcement. As the ministry of John came to an end. Jesus went into Galilee to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. Remember, good news is simply the proclamation or announcement that the king has come. What, what specifically did Jesus say? What did he announce? What did he announce about the good news of the kingdom? Well, here's a summary. What we've read was a summary. He preached, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. This idea that we have seen develop since Genesis, since we began with this church when we opened it up, that we saw in the very beginning this kingdom theme of God wanting a king, a human king, to bring peace to this tohu vavohu world, to this chaotic world, to keep the shalom of Eden, this kingdom has finally come. That's what Jesus is teaching. That the kingdom has arrived. Jesus preached this kingdom, and we will see exactly what he taught next time, what he taught about the kingdom. Since Jesus announces the advent of a new kingdom, the beginning of a new kingdom. And belief in the gospel entails allegiance to the new king, to Jesus. Believing in this, believing in the kingdom, believing in the gospel and the announcement entails, it brings peace in God. As we conclude... Let's look at the response to the announcement of the characters we have seen today. After hearing God's announcement, Mary praised God with a beautiful song. And it was also after she met Elizabeth, who also confirmed what Gabriel was saying. Mary praised God after hearing this wonderful news. John what did he do when he saw the king? He wanted to be baptized by him. And then, what do we see the response with those who heard Jesus? What, what, what did Jesus want people to do in response to the announcement that he proclaimed? There were two things. Believe and repent. Repentance requires a decisive change. Will I continue to live my way under my kingdom, which can be destructive? Or will I live under Jesus' way, 
under God's reign, which is restorative? Will you believe in Jesus that he is God's anointed? That he is the chosen king? Will you worship him as such? Will you believe in the rule that God shows in the gospels? That God's saving reign has come into the world in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? The kingdom has begun. Will you be a part of it? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for your word. You are king. You are Lord. And I pray that as we start this study, this journey in your word, and we learn more about you, we may learn the true you. That you are truly the king, even though this world may tell us otherwise, even though there's a sense of tohu vavohu, a sense of chaos. You are the king. That this world has been waiting for. And you have arrived. And we will worship you. Instead of doing what humans have done for so long. Instead of rebelling against God. Instead of joining up with the serpent. We will worship you, Jesus. We will partner with you, Jesus, in bringing your kingdom here on earth. And I pray that that may be a reality for an encounter church, that we focus on bringing the kingdom of heaven here on earth. And that that may be a reality in each of our lives. That when somebody looks into our heart, They could see that you reign, Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.